Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Rastari. So welcome back to New York City and my apartment. And there are a few fire engines going by, so it's live here. Everything is very lively. And it's our first episode of the new year. And so we're going to kick it off with hanging out with Nicole Glaros and Julia Landauer, two women who are definitely breaking the rules, and they're winning at breaking the rules. Nicole joins us from Boulder, Colorado, where she lives and works. And Julia is here in New York City, where she grew up, but she doesn't live here anymore. She lives in North Carolina now. So here's who we're talking to today. I'm going to kick it off with Nicole. First, she's an entrepreneur, and that means she's a lot of things. Currently, she's the chief product officer of Techstars, a global network, an investor in early stage web software companies. So all of you out there who have one of those, you'll know where to find Nicole real soon. And she's an investor in over 90 companies. That's a lot. One of her superpowers is helping people turn complex topics into simple language, like your pitch. How do you make that simple? What about that elevator pitch? And she loves to push herself like she climbs really big mountains. She boxes, scuba diving, and so much more. And she's married with two kids. Her husband stays at home. So she has one of those reverse marriages. And she's second-generation Greek-American. Her success is directly related to the struggles of her grandparents, she says, because they came to this country not knowing the language. So, Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I am so excited, and that brings us to Julia. So, Julia is a two-time champion NASCAR driver. As I said, she is from New York City, now living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and who made history in 2016 as the highest finishing female in points standings in the K&N Pro Series 62-year history. So in 62 years, finishing fourth in place as a rookie. And I love this because she started racing go-karts when she was 10 years old. I met Julia, I don't know, maybe six, seven, a long time ago when she was a teen, I think. And I was like, holy cow, you've been doing what since you've been 10? And since then, she's a Stanford grad with a bachelor's in science and technology and a big advocate for STEM education. And she applies her tech knowledge to racing. She's a motivational speaker. She focuses on women's empowerment, and she loves to make the crowd laugh. There's a great TED Talk that she does, a Stanford TEDx Talk that is hilarious. And she says she views herself as an entrepreneur first, and then as a race car career is her startup, because everything that she needs to do for this race-up career is the same thing that every entrepreneur in a startup needs to focus on, the branding, the marketing, the PR, development, all of those things. And then to add on to all that, she competed in a TV reality show that probably everyone has heard of called Survivor. So I am really excited. I got to tell you, when I first introduced Nicole and Julia to each other via email, Nicole wrote and said this about Julia. She said, wait, you drive race cars? That's badass. Can't wait to meet you. Followed by this from Nicole. Okay, we're doing this podcast all wrong. The podcast needs to be inside the race car. Here's the setup. 
I need to get an entrepreneur to pitch me in the race car while you rip around the track trying to scare us. Okay, so now we all know what we're in for. And I have to tell you, Nicole, I am determined to make that happen. We can't do it today, but... We're going We're to. going to do this. <laughs> the three of us are going to do this. I can't wait. It's I'm excited about that proposition. <laughs> and I, I bet we could get a lot of I bet we could get a lot of entrepreneurs that would be excited to do it too. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious. We've got to figure this out and with all of our minds, we can, I, make, we, we can make this happen. We just didn't have time for it now, but we will make this happen. So my mentoring moment today is a story about a cow, a man, and udders. Well, the others belong to the cow, not the man, but I'll explain <laughs> that. So years ago, Barry Gibbons, who was the CEO of Burger King, I heard him speak. And this is maybe 25, 30 years ago. So I still, I, this story has lived with me for that, for that many years. And he said, think about this. Who is the person that saw the cow, decided to go pull on the udders, and then drink what came out? He said, you know, you want that type of person in your company. You want at least one of those people in your company. This is before we ever used the word disruption or innovation. This is a long time ago. He said, you may not want to sit next to that person on an airplane, but you want that person in your company. And that story has lived on with me forever because whenever I get into that, ooh, I don't know, you know, is my idea really a good idea? Whatever my equivalent of pulling on the udders is. And I'll think, well, if it was such a good idea, shouldn't somebody else, probably somebody else would have thought about it first. So and it probably isn't a good idea. Whenever I get into that mindset, I think about the person pulling on the udders and saying that we need to be that person who does just that, who does pull on the udders. And I was listening to an interview with Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey. And Michelle Obama said this about what young people should do. She said, just live your life. Live it out loud. And I thought back to the utter story and thought, that's what we all need to do. We need to go for it and we need to live our lives out loud. So as I was thinking about all that and thinking about you two, I thought, well, that was just a great mentoring moment because I think, Nicole and Julia, you can add a lot to that because you both do live your lives out loud. Oh, yeah. And I think that's going to tie in really nicely with what I have later, too, because, I mean, it's um, that's so true. And you can't you can't assume that people are going to come up with with the best ideas like you. You're totally capable of doing that. So I think that's incredible, an incredible analogy and a great story for everyone to really latch on to. And it's a great no pun visual, intended. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great visual because I can actually Barry Gibbons, when he told this story, he said that he was sure it was a man who pulled on those letters. Now I'm not sure if he's still saying that 30 <laughs> years later, but but whoever was pulling on those udders, it's just a great visual. It's like this comic that goes in my head of somebody pulling on the udders and oh, like yeah. saying, "Now let's drink it." Right. That's uh, and it takes guts. Like, right. You need to be pretty brave to decide that that's a good thing to do. So that's that's awesome. That's a great story. Just to remind everybody, I don't know the story that Julia is going to tell or Nicole is going to tell, and they don't know my story. So this truly is our conversation. You're yeah. you're you're right in the middle of our conversation. So Nicole, what came to your mind? Well, it's funny as I was listening to you talk, I, I had a mentoring moment that I was going to um, talk about, but as I was listening to you talk, I, another one came to mind. So I'm actually going to switch gears, sort of real time here, which is um, something that. I heard that affected how I think about the world. And when I was when I was first learning to become an investor here at Techstars, I had I was getting guidance from 
um, people like Brad Feld and David Cohen, and they were really instrumental in helping like teach me and train me on how to be a, um, a great investor. And we used to say in those early days that it was, you know, the way that you evaluate a team is by seeing how passionate they are about their project, right? How passionate are they? They have to be passionate. And if they're not passionate, you know, then it's probably not a good investment. But Brad Feld put it in slightly different words for me. And this was the mentoring moment for me. As you're looking at a company, as you're evaluating, try to figure out if the founders were put on the planet to make this company. Were they born to do this? Does everything in their life lead up to this moment, right? And this startup and this company. And that was powerful for me because, you know, I started looking, I started evaluating companies with, through that lens. But beyond that, I started evaluating myself through that lens. And what was I put on the planet to do? What was I born to do? What are the things that are in my life that are leading up to this moment? And am I doing that thing? And I would say that, you know, I probably still struggle with that answer a little bit. Like I know, I think I know what I'm good at, but, um, you know, what was I born to do? And, and I, and can I identify that in an entrepreneur? What were they put on the planet to do? And what we, when we look historically at the companies that have done really well that we've invested in, I would say the ones that were put on the planet that were born to do this are actually really successful. Those are the companies that are winning and it almost doesn't matter the market that they're in or the product that they created. What matters is that their tenacity to go after this and be successful at it is the thing that's making them win, is the thing that is driving their success. And you know, I also talk to a lot of entrepreneurs that are, that are failing. And the companies that are failing, we, we talk about that. Like, what were you born to do? And is this the thing? If you can find the thing that you were born to do, it will lead to your success. And I would say that, you know, sort of bringing it back to me and how it's affected my look, outlook on life, I don't think I was born to be an investor. I don't, I don't think I was put on the planet, you know, to help grow startups. But I think what I was put on the planet to do was to really help help people get past their own barriers. And I have taken that into technology and into entrepreneurship and into investing. And I think it's the thing that makes me good at what I do. But I think it's still a journey, right? Identifying what what that element is that you were born to do. And and when I read about Julia's background, like she was clearly put on this planet to race cars. I think that's amazing. Right? She's been doing it since she was ten. Like all of all of the things in this world have led up to her being a successful race car driver, and that's that's led to her success, right? So I don't know. My men- my mentoring moment was just thinking about what were you born to do and looking through that lens to identify successful opportunities and, and go after them. Okay, so let's talk about that because I think, as you said, it's hard to sometimes come up with what you were born to do, to yeah. figure that out. I think for Julia, you were she was born I, to. I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was definitely born. I was born. very lucky that that became very clear early on. I realized that's that's a privilege, I think. But how did you even discover that? So, okay, you were born to race, but how did you even know that? Well, that's where it was pure chance and luck. And I think luck is a big part of everyone's success. Um, And my parents were looking for an activity that their kids could do all together on the weekends and that their girls could compete against boys in. So there are only a handful of sports that girls and boys compete together. And they figured out racing was something. So I never asked to go go go-kart racing, um, but they got me to go kart racing and I fell in love with it. So I knew by 12 that I wanted to keep doing this. And so it was again, chance, but it, you know, I got to have the opportunity and capitalized on it. So I knew that I was willing to 
you know, put in blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen. So I think, and you can find that anyway, right? Either early on, or as Nicole was saying, you kind of find it on a kind of more windy path. But as long as you're going after it and trying to figure it out, I think that's what's the important part. Yeah. So I would actually, I would actually argue that I'm not sure that that's chance, right? I, I think that that's called exploration and. And I think you you have parents that were really insightful enough to try different things and explore different avenues for their for their fa- you know for your family. And when I when I think about trying to identify the thing that you were born to do, it isn't just waiting for it to happen to you. It's actively going out and seeking it and right. exploring new things. And you know the the famous quote is the harder I work, the luckier I get. It's along those lines. It's not yeah. it's not being passive. It's being an active player and an active author in your life, exploring what those things are, finding it, figuring out what makes you happy, what what gets you excited, and then all right, how can I how can I build a life and a career around those things, right? Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. And I think it's fascinating that you say that because, you know, we started with me and my sister and my brother go-karting and um, you know, my sister found that she didn't love it. She liked to drive and wasn't as much into the racing. But then that then forced her to find something else that she was super excited about and she started rowing crew and became a national champion in high school. And so it's just like, you know, what we originally were given was not her calling, not what she was you know, really excited by, but the teamwork involved with rowing was kind of that it served her for that. So it is interesting, like that exploration and that, you know, determination to find something. I totally agree with you. A friend of mine says, tells me the story. And I think for all, everyone who is a parent will be a parent is when he was growing up, his dad would take that family to do everything at least once. So you would see at least one opera. You would go ice skating. You would do everything that his dad could think of at least once. For that reason, Joy, as you were saying, is to be able to expose you to all of these things. Because if you don't see them or aren't exposed to them, you don't even know. Because think of how many kids don't want to go to the opera, right? I mean, how many 10-year-olds are saying, oh, yeah, I want to go to the opera. <laughs> let, me, let me do that. Yeah. But my friend loves the opera. And he says all the time, he started because his dad was like, okay, we're all going. As the kids were kicking and screaming yeah. that we're going to the opera. So I think that's it's really is. I, you know, I look back. I have a friend, Susan Seminelli, who has a spa, um, Susan Seminelli Day Spa here in New York. And we've been friends for like 25 years. And she is like you, Julia. She was put on this planet to make people, to make women especially, but she also works with men, feel good about who they are. So she's very holistic in her mm-hmm. spa. It's not about wearing the right makeup, which is you know a tiny little part of it. It's all about crystal healing and just feeling good about who you are and eating right and doing all those things. And she would always say to me, Denise, you're not, when I was at USA Today, as much as I loved it and as great as I was for them and they were for me, she would say to me all the time, that is not your calling. You just aren't allowing yourself to find your calling because you're a single parent and you want you have the golden handcuffs from USA Today right. and you're not allowing yourself to find that calling. And But even when I was at USA Today, Nicole, this relates to what you were saying, I always thought my calling was helping others achieve to get to that. You know, so it was helping other women. When I look back, it was... I think that was a big piece of it, but not like what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So I think, and she would say to me all the time, you need a really big platform. Don't downsize yourself and say, oh, well, you know, I'll go speak to a group of 10 people at the high school. You need a big platform. Right. Oh, that's so great. It's great <laughs> to have those people who encourage you right. to do that. 
Yeah, it's um, it's funny. The one of my themes for I, I try to write themes for the upcoming year, um, just so I could try to stay focused. And one of my themes for 2017 that I want to stay focused on is this notion of signal, um, not noise. And the thing that has struck me, especially when I started thinking about like what were you what were you born to do? What were you put on this planet to do? It's hard to figure that out when you're surrounded by noise. It's hard to figure that out when you've got 10,000 things on your to-do list and, um, and you're not getting any of it done or when your cell phone is dinging every eight seconds with a text message or Twitter or Facebook or your email or Instagram or whatever your phone is dinging with, right? And in, in this day of information, we have so much data and information that we don't create the space and time to turn that data and information in, into knowledge or wisdom. And and my, my, my personal theme for 2017 is this, no, this notion of signal. So how do I reduce the noise, not only in the noise that I'm getting, but the noise that I'm pushing out into the world and, and, and get to the signal, right? How do I, how do I create space and time to really identify a, you know, what I'm put on the planet to do and B, what those around me are put on the planet to do so I can help them achieve that. Because when we can do that together, I think magic happens, right? The rising tide raises all ships. And, and I get your, your story around, um, you know, having the golden handcuffs and, and liking what you were doing, but, um, but what was your real calling and not really being able to pay attention to it because you had too many other things going on because you were a single working mom, right? Right. So, and I allowed it also, Nicole. I think that's the important part, right? Because it allowed me to not focus on what I could do. That's right. That's right. So how it do you gave create... me a good pop out. Yeah. So and like, how do you... yeah. Right. How do you create that? Like for, for all people out there, how do you create the space and the time to really hear, you know, to, to be able to process through all that information what your what your true calling is. And I don't actually have a great answer to that, right? It's I think it's something that the, everybody will struggle with. But maybe just being aware that it is one of the reasons is the first step in the direction. Right. So let's come up with some steps for our listeners as we're, as we're and for ourselves as yeah. well, right? How do we how do we get rid of the noise so we can hear the signals. I mean, Julia, you listen I, to the I, signals. Yeah, I have one like really strong suggestion that you know my family's doing a little bit more of it, my boyfriend, but um, I don't with my phone specifically because it's so easy to get locked into that and be a slave to your phone. I actually I don't get any alerts or notifications for anything besides um, you know text. Nothing else pops up on the front. So when I'm ready to go check Instagram, I can see who's followed me. When I'm ready to check check Facebook, Twitter, I don't. I hate letting that infiltrate my, my life. And so I do that. And then I also, um, I've moved all of the like engagement app icons onto the second screen of my phone. I have an iPhone, but so when I unlock it, I can't just click. It takes a little effort on my part, but I have to actively swipe to go do something. And if it's not necessary right then, or if it's not the best use of my time, I kind of, you know, limit myself in that way. But it's been very, it's been very helpful just to not feel like I'm getting bombarded and interrupted all the time, especially with Snapchat, because that can get so right. aggressive really quickly. <laughs> and, you know, it's just that's not the most important thing. And if it becomes the most important thing, I can change it back. But really just limiting the in, incoming data like that. And Nicole, is there something that this instance is one of your things to do in 2017 that you figured out that you will do? Well, first of all, I'm going to take I'm going to do that as soon as we get off this podcast. Go, like, <laughs> me to too. I, I have to like me too because I'm so tired of that Twitter beat, that, that ping, ping, ping. It's like, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, so I did turn off notifications, but I didn't move all the apps to the second screen. And I think that's actually brilliant because you actually do need some sort of barrier. And that's a brilliant barrier. So I'm, I'm totally following that advice. Um, but yeah, I would, the thing that I've, I've set up for 2017 on that theme of signal, not noise is I put down the four things that I want to work on for myself in 2017. And, you know, they're, they're fairly obvious. One of them is, is health. Um, Another one is sort of professional development and self. And the third is family and friends, right? And when I think about those things, it's like, what am I doing in each one of those areas to move the needle? What am I trying to accomplish? What am I trying to accomplish and what can I do to move the needle? So what, I, what I've done is I've set up five minutes at the beginning of every day before I start my work day. So I go, I, you know, I shower, I get my kids to school, I deal with a hectic morning, I get to the office, I sit down, I look at my three things, I spend five minutes going, what am I going to do today to move these things forward? And then I put those things at the top of my list, right? And I do those things first before I do anything else. So before I check my email, before I have a meeting, before I, you know, whatever it is that I need to do that day. So that five minutes in the morning just really has been powerful. And I've only, by the way, I've only been doing this for a week. So ask me again in six months and see if I'm still doing it and if it's actually worked. But it's sort of the way that I tried to create, let me make sure that I am signal and that I'm focusing on the right stuff and that I prioritize those things over anything else um, and then get everything else done. And I don't know, that's, that's the step that I've taken in that direction because my world is full of noise. Yes, and I've also done one thing in saying what you're saying, Nicole, and then I put everything in my calendar. So what, so I have said, okay, here are the top three. I have three things I want to focus on today to really keep me focused on those three things. And then the rest of my day, I put things in my calendar versus having a to-do list so I can actually see how much time I'm blocking out. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times for me, I'm ADHD, so I have a to-do list. That, you know, I, think that, I think there are 72 hours in every day at least, mm-hmm. but I can accomplish everything. And I can't. So when I put them in my calendar, and then you can really start prioritizing because it's like, well, I've run out of time. Right. So what can I actually do today? That's such great structure. I'm gonna, it's, I'm gonna take that right. idea because I. And, and then there's a great one, and then I want to get Julia to your mentoring moment. But I'll share this. So Tiffany Schlein, who is a filmmaker, did a great film called Fifty Fifty. It was before the election that went out, and it was about women leaders in the world. It's a, it's a great film, and. It's, a, it's like a 24-minute documentary, so everyone should watch it. But the bigger point is she does something that she calls a technology Shabbat. So on Friday night, she and her entire family, and she has teenagers, but they've been doing this since they were little, they turn off all electrical equipment, and they don't turn it back on until Saturday. Oh, I love it. Because it gives oh, them great. that freedom, right? And she was like, and everybody knows she has a landline. I'm like, well, you know, I have a 90-year-old mom. What if she calls? And she's like, well, she calls on the landline. I'm like, oh, you have a landline. <laughs> <Different>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I got it. <laughs> That's really great. Right, but isn't it great? I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm and but I think about it a lot, so I'm getting there. So Julia, I want to hear your mentoring moment. Yeah, so it's uh it's kind of related to what both of you guys have said, but um I was thinking about this and I feel like a lot of my life has been no one big moment that has been like my aha moment. It's been a bunch of little ones and Back in earlier in college, I was working with an organization called Girls for a Change, and you know I would go in and talk with their middle school girls 
every every so often and I had a discussion that I was trying to give and I just didn't have a good punchy ending and so I very you know kind of lazily just went through Pinterest and looked up you know motivational uh, quotes specifically uh, for people not gender specific or anything um, and I came across this quote from Arata which I didn't know of and it just said if it's both terrifying and amazing you should definitely pursue it and this was so relevant to me because I was in college. I was trying to figure out how to become a race car driver when everyone thought I should be putting my degree to other use. And um, at the time, it was really great because it was right when I was going on Survivor, and that that scared the crap out of me. And I, but it was also so exciting. And um, I found that I looked back and I realized, wow, to this point, I've really been letting the fear kind of overpower the excitement and that's you know on a professional level it's also you know for me with boys I took the leap and and you know pursued something with a guy and it was just really exciting so I then started incorporating that into all of the keynotes that I give and um, it became really relevant again this year and I remind myself all the time right because like I give keynotes regularly and so I'm able to keep telling myself this mantra but um, this year has been really scary from a professional standpoint because I'm on the cusp of making it big, and the idea of being a public personality really scares me. I mean, it's terrifying to think that I'm going to be that vulnerable, and I'm going to be, you know, in so many people's living rooms on Sunday mornings eventually. And <laughs> um, But the excitement is so powerful. And so that's just something when I feel like we all deal with fear. We all deal with incredible challenges, but life is short. And I think when we have these questions of, should I pursue something or should I not, we really have to ask ourselves, why not? And if it relates to being scared, then ask yourself, okay, but is the potential payoff or the process really exciting? And I think if it is, then you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the people who are going to be hopefully positively affected by your decision to go after it. And, um, I mean, I just think it's so powerful, and that way you never you're never really looking at fear independent of anything else. Because fear by itself is obviously scary, but if you are taking it out of the vacuum and looking at it from a whole perspective, like I think that's really powerful, and it, and it it gives you a lot of autonomy to to make these choices that will challenge you and will hopefully be really exciting. Okay, so it's really hard for me to believe that anything could scare you. How fast do you go around this track? Right. So we went 170 this year. That first lap was really scary. Um, and what, why is it scary? Um, what's scary for me is uh, just the unknown. I think the unknown, okay, what's braking going to be like? at these speeds. I know it's like 130 miles an hour, but what's, how long is it going to take for the car to slow down? Right. So you just have to gauge it and you want to kind of do it as quickly as possible and be as efficient in the learning process, but you don't really want to do it too fast and push the limits and hit a wall. Right. So, I mean, that's literally, literally, very literally hit a wall. Um, that's bad for everybody. I mean, there are fears, but again, I, it's so exciting to go racing and the adrenaline and the, the slight fear at a lot of times is part of the lifestyle that I really love. Um, but that doesn't mean the fear is not there. I mean, it's, it's definitely there. And are there other things that scare you more than getting in a car and going at 170 miles an hour? Oh yeah. I mean, like I fear not making the driving part of my career work. I mean, there are only 40 top level NASCAR drivers. Chances are really, really slim regardless of who you are. Um, but not making it scares me a lot. Um, and 
I don't know. It's uh, at the, it's also I'm very lucky at this point that I also feel like all right, I have I'm giving it everything. I know that I'm doing everything I can. I know there's a lot of luck involved, but yeah, that scares me. I'm a little scared of the dark on a lighter note. Like, dark? <laughs> that's the, hilarious. I don't like the dark. Survivor was quite the challenge. <laughs> but at least there you're like cuddling up with all these random people on your tribe. So there's no, that other would be people. scary. <laughs> yeah. The cuddling up yeah, with random oh, people that would be scary. It's a, it's a challenge, but um, yeah, I think more of the kind of like abstract conceptual things scare me more than the tangible physical things so is it fair to say that what scares you what doesn't scare you which is going around the track would would scare most people but you still have fears yes and i think a lot of times when at least like when i look at you it's like i just want to like spend days with you because i want to like get this power to come from you to me like i want to like transfer it like through the clouds okay let me let that power so nicole what scares you because you're fearless as well i mean there are different types of fearless there's business fearless julia's on the racetrack and and also in business what scares you well, it was funny as I was listening to Julia talk, I was I was um, thinking about something that I did this year that that scared me to death. And I, 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 I try to do one thing that scares me every year, but this year I sort of topped it, which was um, sign up for a boxing match. And I've never boxed before in my life, never. And I'm not a violent person. I have zero, you know, I was taught to be a nice girl and, you know, hug, not punch and use our words, you know, all of those proper things. But um, I had a friend that that was trying to talk me into coming to boxing. He says it's a great workout. And I was like, dude, I'm not a violent person. I'm not interested. And, you know, he's convincing me it's not about violence. And, oh, by the way, there's a charity boxing match coming up. And it's for charity. And everybody that's done it has never boxed before. It's a bunch of everybody's amateur. You should just do it. And if, you know, you spend you spend three months training. And at the end of the match, if you don't like it, you never have to do it again. But at least you said, you, you know, you, she can say you did it. So I agreed and I made the mistake of signing, of agreeing on Twitter. And then the Denver Post picked up the story like two days later and published that, you know, Nicole Glares of Techstars is one of the boxers. And I thought, well, all right, it's over for me. I can't actually quit now. It's been, it's public that I'm going to do this. And the first time I got into the the gym, I, I had less than three months to train. And the first time, and I had, I painted this picture in my head that it was going to be silly. It was going to be goofy. Like everybody was going to get in the ring and be like, oops, I'm sorry. I hit you. Right. Like, and when I got in the gym the first time I realized, oh no, these people are out for blood. I am going to die. Um, and I was, I was, I've actually never been that terrified in my life. And I have done way more things that I would call death defying the things that would actually kill me. But this one for whatever such as well, such as like I, I climbed Mount Rainier, right? Mount Rainier is a, one is the most glaciated peak in the lower 48 states. And the likelihood of death on it is actually pretty high. Lots of people die on that mountain. And and when you're climbing a mountain, you just don't think that you're going to die. Just you know that it's a possibility, but you're just not thinking that it's a real possibility. So the difference between real risk and perceived risk like that, that climbing a mountain is real risk, but you perceive the risk as low. But in a boxing match, the real risk is actually really low. Like you're not going to die in a boxing match. You worst case scenario, especially in an amateur where people don't punch that hard and you're wearing headgear, yeah, you, you may, maybe you get a concussion, but the likelihood of that's actually really low. Mm-hmm. Um, but the perceived risk is really high. Like you're right. terrified. Somebody mm-hmm. is looking at you in the face and they are trying to punch you in the face, and and everything in your body is telling you to run, and you don't run. You stand there and face it. 
And what ended up happening, I would say the thing that I'm proud of, I actually lost the match, but the thing that I'm most proud of was actually going through with it, was when every cell in your body is telling you to run and you don't, and you lean into it, you become more powerful than your fear. And the thing that I loved about what Julia said is that she's still scared when she gets in the race car, right? Like she was scared going 170 miles an hour. She does this for a living and she does this every day and she's still scared, but that doesn't make her stop doing it. She leans into it. And just the notion of like leaning into the thing that scares you and not causing it to stop you, acknowledging that you're scared, acknowledging that you're fearful and then moving past it, moving through it, I think is, is was the thing that boxing really taught me. Cause that, like I said, that's been the most terrified I've ever been in my whole entire life ever hands down. <laughs> it's like not really that hard, but so anyway, if you want to like tackle something like this, go try boxing because I promise you it'll scare you. I was going to say, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> Julia and I are sitting here just nodding. Yeah. We're like looking at each other, like just nodding. Uh-huh, but I uh-huh. think your point of, you know, I really liked what you said about um, how when every cell in your body is telling you to run, but you don't. I think that that was such a powerful statement. I'm going to write that down and remember it forever because I think that that's what makes people great, right? That Whether it's on a small scale or a big scale, you know, something personal or something, you know, that affects us, a community more. I mean, that's what, what it takes, right? Right. Because if you don't, you'll never take action, right? Yeah. And it, it goes back to the udders in some way, right? right. It, you, you'll never pull on whatever the udders are in your life. Yeah. yeah and it's, and it's like, like I, I, I use the difference between perceived risk and real risk, and I use it a lot in entrepreneurship, right? Because what is what is the real risk here and what is the perceived risk? Like a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, the entrepreneurs that put everything they have, every last penny into their company, and these are people that have families that need to support and mortgages, right? The real risk for them is actually really high, but for them also the likelihood of success is higher because they have everything on the line. But I'm amazed at the people that don't start companies because of the perceived risk, right? Like they're single, they don't have a lot to their name anyway, they don't have a lot to lose, they're not supporting a family, like they don't have mortgages, they don't have all the stuff and they're afraid to go start a company. I'm like, why? 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 What, What do you have to lose? The power of zero, when you have nothing to lose, you have everything to gain. And if your perceived risk is just reputational, like that's just, that's fear-based. Understanding what the risk is and embracing it and, and you leveraging that into, into power, I think is, can be really powerful for people. And, and I, don't, I just don't think most people like think all the way through it. They don't lean into the fear. Yeah, and I also think that ties like that also relates back to what you were saying about where they put on this earth to to do this, right? You know, if they perceived risk gets in the way, then maybe they don't need it at all costs. And you know, you kind of you, if you talk with people who know, you know, big game changers, especially in the entrepreneur entrepreneur space, you know, people will think of them as a little crazy. Like they don't. And it's what I find with me, like not everyone understands what I'm trying to do, what my vision is, how I think it's going to be beneficial to society. But they don't have to, right? They're not doing the work for me. It's for me. And so I think that that notion of, you know, you having full belief in yourself and the the need to make it happen really, really is what's the powerful force behind people being successful. And it's easy to make excuses, I guess, 
Um, and, it's, and it's a journey. I look back, I look at my journey and, you know, the USA Today was a part of that journey that gave me the financial freedom that I could start on my own. So, the, and, and it also gave me a lot of learnings. And then when I had my first business that was a success in learnings, but a failure financially, I learned a lot that got me to where I'm going. So it, that keeps stepping into whatever it is. And you grow and you learn with it. It's taking those learnings and really going for it, which leads me to our next segment, which is I'm done with that. Okay, it's a brand new year, and Podcast One's got a whole bunch of brand new coming your way. We're talking about new shows from Layla Ali, The Forbes Network, NASCAR's Larry McReynolds, Real Housewife Kim Zolchak, amazing scripted series like Murder Made Me Famous, Tori Spelling and Dean McDermott, Richard Marks, Norman Lear, and many, many more. So get on board for 2017 and download the Podcast One app now. That way you can take us with you all year long. <laughs> Happy New Year from PodcastOne.com. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. Time to talk about the things that we're done with in life. So I'll kick it off with, I was thinking this morning that I am so done with making my brain hurt by overthinking everything, right? That I get exa- I exhaust myself. And that goes back to putting things in my calendar. If I don't put things in my calendar and just have a to-do list, I will think, well, I have these three things to do today. Or I, may, I may have 20 things to do, but the overarching are three big things. So I can spend three hours on this project. And I really do start to make my brain hurt because I just overthink it and spend way too much time on that project. So I'm done with making my brain hurt. So what <laughs> about it. you all? What are you done with? Um, I'll, I'll start. I, I would say that Financial independence has been, I will actually call it financial stress, has been a, a, a story I tell myself over and over again. You know, you, you had mentioned at the beginning that I, have, I come from immigrant grandparents that moved to this country with nothing, and they didn't speak the language, and they had to support themselves. And, you know, my, my dad is an entrepreneur, and, and I've been an entrepreneur. And just the notion of, like, as a single provider for my household and all of the financial um, security rests on my shoulders. Just finances are a constant source of stress. And, you know, it's, it's funny to say because I, I earn a healthy living, right? Um, I'm, you know, probably in the top percentage of earners in, in the country, but I'm still stressed about money all the time. And I don't know why. And um, I recently just came to realize that that was the story that I was telling myself, that I'm always stressed about money. And I wanted to be done with stressing about it. So the thing that I've been doing is I would say leaning into it. Like what, what is it that's causing me stress is, is it not being able to support my family? Is it just a notion of security in general? Like what are the things? And one of the things that I realized was causing stress was me just not feeling like I had actually had a hold on it. Like we have a financial planner that manages investments for us. And my husband is the one that does all the spending in the household. And I kind of like that money goes into the checking account every month and I don't actually know where it goes. So that's been part of the stress. So one of the things that I've, I've literally, I've literally, I'm just on the sort of completion end of this. I've spent the last two weeks putting our finances in order in a, in a way that I now have visibility and comfort 
into where the money is going, how much we have, what would happen if something went wrong, right? If something happened to me, if something happened to my earning potential. And I have plans for all of that. And like I have plans for where the money goes and plans for what happens to me, what happens if something happens to me. And that has given me a level of comfort. I mean, it hasn't completely eliminated it, but I would say that I'm done with finances being a stress and and le- and I leaned into that and tried to solve it. And, and now I'm like just much more comfortable. I don't think it's ever going to fully go away, but I'm much like 90% more comfortable than I was just even a year ago, just even having visibility and control over it. Yeah. Does it go back to information is power, so to speak, that now that you know it, and it's not saying that you don't trust your husband where he's spending the money, but when you don't know where it's going, you feel like you don't have that handle. Is, is that part of it? Yeah, part of it, or like getting to the end of the month and going, gosh, how do we have a credit card bill that this is high, that's this high? Like, how are we actually, we're living beyond our means and I make a good salary. Like, how is that possible? And I think part of it was just setting down some ground rules that my husband and I could both get behind and and having some control and visibility into where it was going. And, and then setting up a structure where we could talk about when things were exceeding whatever controls that we put into place. Right. And, and I think that gave us both, that gave us both comfort. Like I just having a structure around how to talk about it in a way that was not antagonistic right. um, and setting up a plan. So we were using software that sort of actually tracks where the dollars go and alerts us when we're over a certain point And then we have to take money from other places. Like it's, it's been, I put up this process that will really help us have a non-antagonistic conversation about it when we've exceeded what we've allocated. Right. I think it's, we have an accountant that, you know, every year breaks down what our spending was at the end of the end of the year. And I got to tell you, I look at it sometimes and I'm like, really? (laughs) We spent that much in that category? I know. I really do need stock in Dwayne Reed, the drugstore. <laughs> living in New York, you do a lot of shopping yeah. at Dwayne Reed <laughs> because yeah. you know it's not like we have the big grocery stores right. and you're like ready to. But you look at it and it's like, really? I mean, I I really didn't need to buy all that. So I think Nicole, it's really great. Is it also gives you a view of what's important in your life? At least it does for me. When I'm looking at that, I'm able to say. Those things I spent money on, now that I'm looking at them, really weren't that important to me. Mm -hmm. I know. It's actually funny. I read a book um, a long time ago called The Soul of Money. And um, it was written by the woman that does the fundraising for uh, a water organization that's slipping my mind at the moment. And she she talks about if you want to, she says, if you want to understand somebody's living philosophy, you show me their their spending habits and I will tell you what their living philosophy is. Right. and I, that really resonated with me in a way that I hadn't thought of before because I, I sat down and looked at it and went, wow, here are the things that are important to me and I'm not spending money in them at all. And this mm-hmm. is the stuff that's not important to me at all. And look at how much money we're spending there. Right. I got to flip that on its head. And, and that was part of this exercise was really being cognizant of, hey, you know, experiences are, are really important to my husband and I that we expose our children to stuff. Let's put money in that deliberately so that when right. we want to go do a crazy trip or do some, you know, some crazy thing, expose our children to new ways of thinking, we can make sure that we can afford it. And I don't need to spend $10,000 a year at Target. I'm sorry. Like, we just right. don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes, I'm with you. And so, Julie, what are you done with? I'm done with um, worrying about stepping on people's toes. I think I I know very well that I like making people happy. I think that was actually one of my issues when I was on Survivor is that I wanted 
everyone to like me. Um, and I've found that I, I don't have the, the space and the bandwidth to put everyone else's needs before mine. Obviously, family and, and friends are one thing, but when it comes to business development or my speaking career or stuff with racing, like, you know, most people are out for themselves and I have to take, I have to join that club, right? And um, I do like being nurturing. I do like helping people, but I I can't let myself get worked up about worrying about hurting someone else's feelings if they're not, you know, an integral part of my life. And it's tough, and that's, like, against my nature. I mean, I, I want to obliterate my competition on the track, no doubt, but when it comes to, you know, from there, I see it as, you know, they're obstacles I have to get by. They're inanimate objects that I need to get by, whereas when you're having interactions with people, you're, you're dealing with people, and people have feelings, and um, I, I think I need to be just a little less sensitive to that um, without being a real awful person. Right. Well, you can still be nice and get what you want. Right. right. And that's why I think women, as women, we get that confused. Sometimes oh, we right. think, okay, I have to be nice, right. but we can still do the right thing and get what we want. I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I struggle oh, yeah. with being the good girl. It's like, I yeah. want everyone to like me. And yeah. so I want, you know, I'll say the right thing, but that's not what makes people like you. Right. And, and niceness. And this is what I talk like the name of the, of the big talk I give is can nice girls win races. And the big thing is that, you know, niceness is a passive trait, right? And so that's not going to be the definer of if people like you or not. It'll be if they can interact with you nicely, if they're, you know, if they're not going to dread doing business with you, but you can be so much more proactive and prioritize different things. And it's fascinating because like my mom was raised to be super nice and she wished that she was, you know, told to be a little tougher and look out for herself a little more. And so my parents didn't raise us like that at all, but it's just, I think culturally that's what's expected of women. And I, I don't know, as the first kid, I was just like, I gotta be nice. I gotta protect my siblings. My parents gotta like me. And, um, breaking that habit is a very active and purposeful effort. And and on the racetrack, go ahead, Nicole. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say the the thing that was going through my head as I was listening to you talking is, if you're not nice, then are you the opposite of nice, which uh, is mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and and I don't and I don't actually know that I believe that that's it, right? Like I don't think the opposite of nice is mean. No, um, I definitely don't. Right, and I I don't know. I just I deal with I guess I deal with that here too. And I would say my my desire wouldn't be to be nice. My desire isn't to be liked. My desire is to not disappoint. But, but the thing that has really helped me, especially as an investor and we're working with companies and having to learning how to have really hard conversations with people mm-hmm. is, is learning how to have a non-emotional but supportive, difficult conversation. So, yes. hey, Mr. CEO, I, this, is your, this is your company and this is your baby and you've worked really hard for it. And th- the things that have made it successful up to this point are these traits in you. But these traits are no longer the traits that are needed in in the CEO role, right? Mm -hmm. If you want your baby to succeed, we need to think about bringing in a new CEO. And and we're here, like I'm here, and I'm going to help you with this transition. And we're, you know, you're not leaving the company. There's still a great position for you in the company. But I think learning how to have really hard conversations in a supportive um, and non sort of confrontational or non emotional way is really important. And that's. I think that's the opposite of being nice because being nice is like not wanting to have difficult conversations with people, um, yeah. telling your business development contact that you, they're not your top priority right now. Learning how to have that conversation is actually really tricky. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that's a great point. And uh, I think that it, 
it's a fine balance and so much of it is in delivery and in tone and being able to be empathetic but as you said not being emotional but being supportive i i had yes. never thought about it like that yes. so thank you nicole that, that's that's great yeah i guess yeah. i just mean that when people sit there and think but i was taught to be nice and i want to be nice but the opposite isn't mean the yes, opposite exactly. isn't something that's not mean right you don't have to be mean to not be nice And sometimes I think when we're, okay, so yesterday I was having lunch with a woman who, with Joan Hornig, who I just adore, and she was saying that, she was talking to a young woman, and she said, I talk to her like I say to my daughters. I was like, okay, you got to get cleaned up. You can't wear that blouse because you can see through it. If you're going to wear it see-through, then wear something under it. And no, your skirt is too short. And and I was thinking, I want to be that way. I I don't want to look at a young woman and think ooh, I wish you wouldn't have worn that to yeah. this event because it doesn't make you look as credible as you need in this event. I'm not saying don't be yourself, but there is that line right. where sometimes we've got to show up looking the part to get the respect that we want. And I was listening to her and I thought, she's really helping this young girl, right? Because by this young girl going to an event in a see-through blouse is really not a good idea mm-hmm. for her. So I think that by speaking up, what seems like we're not being nice is we really are being nice. And if the person who you're speaking up for to, you know, is of the growth mindset and is worth investing in, they're going to see the the nugget of truth in whatever you're saying, regardless of delivery, right? Right. And if they're they're someone who's worth investing in, they're going to respect that they might get a little annoyed at you, but I mean, it'll be worth it. And if someone totally disregards your advice, then maybe they're not seeing the bigger picture. Yes. And I, I, I agree with that. But one of the, one of the things that I, I feel like I've learned is, is that delivery is everything. And it does allow people to hear you where they might not otherwise hear you. And I mean, and I have, I've been in that exact situation as an investor when I'm looking at a young woman that's about to go pitch her business and she's wearing the wrong clothes. Right. And, and if you tell her, don't wear that, like that will put her on the defensive. Mm-hmm. But if you say to her, listen, you're going into this meeting to sell what? To sell your business? Let's make sure that the attention is on the business and not on your looks. Right now you're selling your looks and you look fabulous. Mm-hmm. But you're going to distract people from what you're really trying to sell, which is the business and the business mm-hmm. opportunity. And when you, can, when you can phrase things in a way that are, that are less attacking or the less perceived attacking, the intention isn't to attack. The attention, intention is to help. But you have to, you have to consider how it's being received. So when you can sort of go, okay, how is this going to be received and what way can I orient it around a learning rather than a, an attack – then I think people become much more receptive. And, and that's the difference between sort of being nice and being constructively critical, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And, yes. um, and it depends on your personality too. For Joan, it's who she is. Yeah. And so you just like, you, you get it, right? I think if I were to be that bold, I could take, people would be like, oh my God, because that's not the person I am. Right. But Joan is just that person. Yeah. Yeah. And ladies, sure. speaking of being nice, <laughs> <laughs> I could go on forever, but we have to end. But before, I want to know, well, first I have one quick question, Julia, that my doorman asked on, the, on Julia's way up. How do you fit in the cockpit? All right, so for <laughs> And she's tiny, so it's not like yeah. I'm looking at her. It's like, how do you fit in the for cockpit? For those of you who don't know, NASCAR cars don't have doors. You have to slide through the window, and the seats that we sit in have these big headrests so that we don't move around. So, I mean, it's it's a really fine project of like wiggling your toes in, kind of getting your hips in, rotating, I wish you could see her as she's She's making all the moves. She's wiggling around. So if you can't hear her in the mic, it's because she's actually like giving me a live demonstration. But it's tough. You got to, 
I'm glad that I'm a small individual squeezing into those cars. Right. When she, I said to my doorman when he called up, I said, okay, you got to know this. Julia is a successful race. She's a champion race car driver. And the first thing he said was, how does she fit in the cockpit? <laughs> I would know how they fit in the cockpit. It's a great question. Right. So with that, ladies, where can we find you? I am Julia here. I am on uh, at Julia Landauer on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and then Snapchat's also at Julia underscore Landauer. And I'm very interactive with everyone. So JuliaLandauer.com is another great place for information. And I love hearing from everybody. And Nicole, where can we find you? Best place to get me is actually on Twitter at ngleros, um, or you can also shoot me an email, Nicole at techstars.com. And um, I do blog occasionally at nearlynicole.com. And thank you both so much. And, okay, we have to make a pact that we're going to figure out how to do a podcast <laughs> in a race car with an entrepreneur, Nicole. I'm <laughs> in. I'm in. Let's okay, do it. We're all in. We're all in. I get it. I got it. We're in. So sending you kisses <laughs> to Boulder across the table. And thank you both so much. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having me. Us. So talk about an adrenaline rush. I think I need to like go outside, run around the block a few times. Thanks so much for joining us today. And to make sure you're getting mentoring moments the moment it's live, which is every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, rate and review. It takes like less than a minute. So just do it. So this week, I'd like to shout out to three of the many fabulous women who have rated, reviewed, and shared mentoring moments from the very first episode. So thanks to Amira Pollock, Jenny Lefcourt, and Tammy Tibbetts. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what scares you and how do you confront it? You don't need to drive a car at 170 miles an hour or get punched in the face. But what scares you and how do you take it on? What about your purpose? What is your purpose? Why were you put on this planet? And are you even close to living to what you were put on this planet to do? And then I love this saying, because think about it and think about what you believe in. So the saying is, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Is it luck or is it something else? Or is it a little bit of both? So you can always find me on Twitter. It's easy, at Denise Rostari. And then there's a little extra something. So we all know that we're all shopping online these days. And Amazon is one of the biggest online malls on the planet. But here's something else I'd like for you to know about Amazon. That every time you use Amazon, you can support this podcast. That's right. So if you use my Amazon banner when you shop, a small amount of the purchase goes directly to help support Mentoring Moments at no cost to you. So here's how you do it. You go to podcastone.com, you click on Killer Deals, then you click on my show logo, and then you'll go to Amazon, the same Amazon site that you always shop at. So you have the same experience, the same everything. You'll see your same cart, your shopping cart. All the things you love about Amazon are there. But this time, it comes with an extra bonus of supporting this podcast. Thank you for being with me. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. 
I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law, is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.